Welcome back to a very special episode of Laser Graves. I am your co-host, E.K. Wimmer. Hey, E.K. Wimmer. I am Mariah Rose. And as I just mentioned, this is our 100th episode. So celebrations are in order. For sure. We've been partying like... For four days straight, haven't slept. Totally. Crystal everywhere. Yep. People have just life. been sleeping on our floors. Mm-hmm. But it's time to record. We got to kick them out now. Let's do it. <laughs> you are listening to Laser Graves, a podcast about 80s stuff. We do all kinds of stuff. And today is going to be an extra special one that includes kind of everything all in one. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot to take in. <laughs> but before we get started, how exciting. This is 100. Yeah. We did so it. So many memories. We did not miss a single week ever. We've been so consistent. Jeez. We started this in December of 2018. That's crazy. <laughs> Sitting in a walk-in closet. Um, and we've come so far. To the garage. To the garage. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, just on a personal note, thank you to everybody who has been yeah. with us along the way. Or if you're just joining us on this episode, I hope you stick with us because we have had a blast. It's been yeah. almost two years. I don't think we've ever once said, what's the point of any of this? It just no gets way. more and more fun every time. Absolutely. And we've fought through like full raging colds. I remember a few of our early episodes, I could barely talk and we still <laughs> recorded. <laughs> we had a commitment, uh, but we've come a long way and this is very exciting. And as we mentioned last week, uh, as a thank you to everybody, we did a big giveaway. Mm-hmm. Thank you to everybody who entered. So many entries. We can't even <laughs> count them all. So many people entered that we found out about like in a weird sideways kind of approach. Apparently, if you have a private account on Instagram mm-hmm. and you use the hashtag, we don't see it or we can't find it. So we found them, but it was a very roundabout way. Anyway. It's sorted. We thank you. Thank you to everybody who entered. Uh, we announced it today. So you can go onto our Instagram site and we will have the, the winners announced. So congratulations to the three winners who get the original Pee Wee Herman drawings that Mariah did. As well as all the fun uh, VHS movies from the 80s. Yes. Enjoy. And if that wasn't enough, so it's our 100th, we did the giveaway, and we said we had a very special announcement. And this one is even bigger than our 100th or the giveaway. Because it's a gift to us. (laughs) It is something we deserve for once. (laughs) Treat yourself. We have been toying with this idea for literally a year now. Yeah. And it's time. We are launching an official Patreon for Laser Graves. And you guys, we are really excited. We maybe took mm-hmm. this a little too serious. Um, <laughs> we had so much fun. We have been burning this candle at both ends for weeks. Just it, getting prepped. For all the research that it took for this episode, but then trying to record all these episodes. So what we did was we didn't want to just launch Patreon today. We wanted to make sure that if you join today, you already unlock all three bonus episodes that would come out normally kind of staggered throughout the month. Mm-hmm. So let's take a moment and talk about what you get. It would be at patreon.com slash lasergraves. Easy. You Easy got peasy. this. You can go there right now. Just hit pause. Go follow us. Uh, at the $2 level, you get a bonus episode from yours truly. Uh, it's a news show from the 80s. It's absolutely ridiculous. And it's going to get more stupid 
as I go. They are shorter shows, so 20, 25 minutes, but they come out once a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mariah's show, Rapid Fire, is true headlines from the 80s uh-huh. in a really stupid news broadcast format, and it's very funny. It's so fun. And so for $5, you get my show, plus you get The Chill Factor, which is Eric's show. You want to tell us about it? Sure, yeah. So The Chill Factor is... Also another mini episode, 20-25 minutes, but it will be focusing in on the lives and music of film composers. That's awesome. Very exciting, and I spend a l- way too much time researching it. It's, you did. It's not a funny one like yours. It's more like just serious. <laughs> serious content. It's like if you want to feel like you're in college again and listening to somebody lecture. Oh, no. I'm joking. Don't. I'm joking. There's Hawaiian music. You'll enjoy it. <laughs> But it's serious. Yes. And then, so you will get at the two level, you'll get, you know, our four episodes are still a month free. Yes. But you'd be supporting us. Thank you. And then at the $2 level, you would get those, but you would also get Mariah's Rapid Fire news broadcast at the five level. You get that one and mine, which is on film composers. And then at the top tier right now, which is all we're offering, and we may increase this as time goes on, is the $10 level. That's the big boy level. Oh, yeah. There it is. And it's an, our time travel episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which we have been flirting with since, I think, like the very beginning. So, yeah. Laser it's a Graves. full length episode. A very full length. Yeah. Uh, so, Laser Graves found a time machine. We hop in it and we can go forward, backwards, anywhere. Sideways. And cover movies from any time now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and our first one was a lot of fun. Yes. So, yeah. And that is a full length episode. So that's what you get. You'll get them, um, I think, the second week, third week, and fourth week of every month they'll come out. Yeah. And then we'll throw in bonus stuff as we see fit, maybe interviews, bonus episodes, whatever. It's just going to grow over time, but that's what you get to start with. And it, if even at the top tier, breaks down to about like $2.250 a week. Yeah. So <laughs> that would be seven episodes that you're getting of us, I guess. Yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so much of us. But if you, you know, if you commute or whatever, um, it's great to have something to fill your time. But also, it's our way of thanking you for listening and for supporting us. You guys have absolutely no idea how much time we spend, specifically you, Eric. Uh, you spend <laughs> so much time editing, and uh, it's a, a way for you to show us your support. We'd really appreciate it, and we thank you. Yeah, and also the intent of our Patreon wasn't to just have some random stuff on the side. No. It's where the party's at. I'm going to tell you right now. (laughs) You will get, if you sign up today, you'll get all three. So you can get a a sampling and decide if you want to continue being a Patreon. I will say it's it's where the fun stuff is. So enjoy, have fun. But that is our big announcement today. So it is is official. We have a, a Patreon account and we hope you join us. Yes, please do. Thank you. Okay, enough with all that nonsense. Uh, Thrift Store Finds the Week. Yes, I had kind of a productive week. Um, first and foremost, I found pants that are long enough for me. Hmm. We live in New Mexico where uh, tall people do not exist. So yeah. uh, it's very difficult for me to find secondhand pants. Boring. Then I also found an Aubrey Beardsley uh, book, which Wait. is so, so rad. So I'm, I'm most jazzed about that. It's a vintage book, very old, great. It's just 
images of his work. I'm glad you found pants because I remember for a long time you had to go through that um, circus retail store <laughs> for the, the stilt people. <laughs> you <know? laughs> so I'm glad Basically. You're, you're not having to wear those tie-dye pants anymore. Yeah. Well, what about you? What did you find? I found a bunch of stuff. I found some interesting things. I found a couple Naughty by Nature cassettes. So, you know, you down <laughs> okay. with OPP. And then I found a 7-inch by Motley Crue. That was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. The one that I thought was really interesting and I'm... Like uh, Paul Blart, King of the Segways, is I found a DVD <laughs> box set of seasons three through five of Pee Wee's Playhouse. Oh. Yeah. Weird. Talk about, you didn't oh, show me. Yeah, of all the times to find it. Nice. So that's what I got. And that leads us right into our 100th episode, our very special episode, mm-hmm. tackling the history of Pee Wee Herman. <sighs> Come closer. Still. Ah! I'm in your living room. <laughs> yes, if if you lived in the 80s, if you lived in this world for any amount of time, you've probably heard of Pee Wee Herman and we're diving right in. And we kind of brought this up like as an idea for our 100th and then we fell down the rabbit hole. There is so much. So we're going to give you a broad overview and you can, uh, you know, follow the thread wherever it may lead you. <laughs> yeah, it was intense. I mean, we watched so many interviews, documentaries, read magazine articles, newspaper clippings from the time. I mean, it was bonkers. Mm-hmm. That being said, we really enjoyed it. Oh, but yeah. But we are very excited to share with you what we found because... We already knew a lot. We grew up on Pee Wee, both of us. But man, I didn't realize how in, how incredible the story really was. Yeah. So if you liked our previous episodes that were kind of similar, like the Weird Al episode mm-hmm. or even the Max Hedrum episode, this is like 12.0 right now. And it's going to be fun because he is quite the character and there was no shortage of fun stories mm-hmm. and interesting facts to learn. Sit back, relax. This is our 100th episode. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you right now, I don't know how long this is going to go. One billion It's going to go until we're done because we learned a lot and we're going to tell you about it, damn it. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited for my brain to be uh, released of the pressure. I can't wait till next week. I'm just going to like sleep. I feel like it's like uh, my head's a balloon and it's going to be a peewee farting out the air (laughs) slowly as we go. Pee-wee Herman, let's right. get started. Let's go back. Time travel back to 1952. Wow. Yes. Pee-wee is actually not a person. <laughs> Although he wanted you to believe he was for many, many years. Yes, and we'll talk about that in great deal. Uh, most of you know who Paul Rubens is, but we're going back before Paul Rubens. Way back to New York, 1952, Paul Rubens was actually born... Paul Rubenfeld. Ooh, Ooh. Fancy. He's the oldest of three children. Currently, in case you want to know, his older sister is a lawyer and his or his younger sister is a lawyer and his younger brother is a dog trainer. Okay. I, there you go. Well, I, I had to put out the dog trainer. Of course you did. <laughs> Lord of the dogs. Yep. So 
He spent uh, some of his early years in New York, and then his family moved to Sarasota, Florida. His mother was a teacher, and his father worked in in sales. He like owned a lamp shop. It was kind of weird, but he also had worked as a pilot for the British Royal Air Force, the United States Air Force, and the Israeli Air Force. Okay. So his, interesting. I know because you read about it, and you're like, his dad was like a lamp salesman. They're just like a normal family but then you realize okay there's more going on here i'm assuming that he at a very young age was a very precocious and and interesting child yeah well actually in one of the interviews we watched or little documentaries so many of his childhood friends uh paul rubin's childhood friends were like who knew he was so mellow and casual but I don't think the people they interviewed knew him because (laughs) from a really early age, at age five, he was really interested in performing to the point that his father built him a stage. You know, this is interesting. This happened with the Weird Al episode, too, where people, they would interview friends from his childhood. I don't want to, like, put myself in this world, but imagine, just put yourself in that situation for a second. Say we became famous for some reason Mm -hmm. and they dug up. Joe Schmo from our elementary school who we talked to once. Mm-hmm. Or some weirdo you dated in high school or And they're whatever. like, oh yeah, that's how they were totally. And people are hanging on that as though they're any authority on who you are. Absolutely. Oh, that would be just horrible. Absolutely. So whatever, take anything you hear from anybody at any time with a grain of salt. <laughs> yeah, <But> life lesson. <laughs> from an early age, according to my research, his dad built him a stage and he and his siblings would perform. I did this as a kid too. Like my, uh, I my dad didn't build me a stage, but I would write plays wherein the neighborhood boy, whose name was Chad Pedic, sorry, Chad, he would fall in love with me. and every single performance it was just about him falling in love with me and when that didn't work i performed uh, a wedding between our dogs (laughs) you also uh, had a reoccurring skit that you did that i've seen footage of on vhs home videos which um led its way into a successful career now starting today which is you would recreate fake news broadcasts and so Rapid fire is an extension of your childhood dream. Yes, $2 on Patreon. Anyway, (laughs) uh, (laughs) so in high school, he was actually the president of the National Thespian Society. I couldn't find clarification if it was in his school, state, region, the United States. I don't know. So he was president of some national thespian society, either chapter or in total. Oh, man, you know, Julian Sands was also a member of that. For, in, he in still England. is. He's the crown prince of it. <laughs> he is. Uh, so generally, he just performed in theaters and plays throughout high school. He was always performing. So yeah, that's whatever, whatever you read otherwise is dumb. He eventually went to Boston University and began applying to like arts schools and colleges and he was denied for a lot like Juilliard and stuff and he eventually ended up being accepted to the California Institute of Arts so that's when he made the transition to uh, California okay Mm -hmm. and so he started you know going to college and he networks this guy knows everybody Still to this day, he knows everybody it's Holy crazy smokes so he he knows how to work it and he did right from the start 
But by the 1970s, he was working in local comedy clubs. So he kind of found his niche. Even though he did serious acting, too, he, uh, I think, found his area where he was thriving in local comedy clubs. And then he began to make guest appearances on The Gong Show. Okay. So you can see how big his rise is from being just a high school student to appearing on The Gong Show in the 70s. He was appearing as a comedian there? He would do skits with a woman named Charlotte McGinnis, uh, the hilarious... Hilarious Betty and Eddie. Oh, uh, interesting. Yep. Okay. And then this is actually where he becomes involved with the Groundlings. Oh, okay. Yeah, the Groundling. I mean, this is where it really all starts for him. Mm-hmm. And some people may know this name, some might not, but it's a very important group to know as far as the history of stand-up oh, comedy gosh, and improv. Yes. Yeah. So the Groundlings were an LA-based improv sketch comedy troupe and a school, actually, that was founded in 1974. Mm-hmm. So we're in LA and all these misfits and random people who are comedians and on the fringe and outcast of society found their home in the Groundlings. And boy, did they really find each other. It's really an interesting story to see how they came together and just help each other to all achieve some form of success. Yes, and there are so, so many famous many names. people who came through there. Yeah. But what's fascinating is it was founded in 74, and already by the mid to late 70s, Paul Rubens is a member of the Groundlings. So he was really in. I don't know. I couldn't find who the first class basically was. Mm. But he was there at the very beginning. Yeah, so that's pretty fascinating. I didn't know that. So he was there in the 70s, and he remained in the Groundlings for six years. But it is at the Groundlings that he became really close friends, really one of his closest friends until... Till his death, sadly, R.I.P. is Phil Hartman, a yeah. genius comedian, and was instrumental in in Paul Rubin's life as a comedian. Yeah, and really helped make his career. Their stories are like inextricably linked, at Absolutely. least early on. He also made friends with some of the other Groundlings at the time, who many of them stayed in touch and collaborated, but. John Paragon was the big one who we'll talk about a lot because he came up over and over. He was a huge part of Pee Wee. And then Lynn Marie Stewart was also another major player in the Pee Wee story. Mm -hmm. And then one who didn't play a lot of parts in Pee Wee, but was a very close friend of his. And I think if I remember correctly in an interview I heard, they were even roommates at one time is uh, Cassandra Peterson, who went on to become Elvira. Ah, refer back to our episode on Elvira if you want to learn more about her. Yeah, we did a whole episode on Elvira. Boy, was that fun. And she's a character, too. So the thought of the two of them hanging out with Phil Hartman, like the three of them... Makes me laugh. I, that's what a troop right there. Yeah, and their their senses of humor too. I I can see where they would you know make it work or meet. Yeah. it makes sense. Yeah. So now that he was established in the Groundlings, he was kind of finding his way. Mm-hmm. He was doing all these random sketches and characters. A lot of them were just goofy. Like you know, they were all doing character actors and improv, mm-hmm. and he was really good at it too. But it was in 1977. So keep in mind, I mean, this was only established in 74. That's how early on it was. In 77, I think as the story goes, if I can remember, he was on stage and he was forgetting some part of his act or lines. And he did a nervous laugh. And it was the peewee laugh. (laughs) And that was basically the first incarnation of some sort of you know, subconscious Pee Wee working its way out, but he remembered the laugh because people reacted to it. 
he was doing this laugh to try and buy it's time. It's so ridiculous and obnoxious. Yeah. And so that really kind of was the very, very beginnings. Do you think his laugh is kind of like Eddie Murphy-esque too? I could see that a little bit. There, it's just like so loud. It's like a shouty laugh. But his laugh is also, it seems very innocent at first, but it also seems kind of maniacal at the same time. Wait, was this his like low bubble, like ha 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 laugh? Yeah. Or his loud like ha ha? No, no. I think it was his, his lower one. Okay. But from that, it really, it's, I think the seed was planted and Paul Rubens and Phil Hartman then kind of sat around on their off time, mm-hmm. hanging out as good friends, and started to develop the character of Pee-wee together. I think this is interesting because a lot of people don't realize Phil Hartman's role in this. And it was yeah. actually huge, pretty heavy. I mean, he co-wrote most of Pee-wee's stuff. Mm-hmm. They developed this character together. And what's interesting is right from the very beginning, Paul Rubens made this decision to make Pee-wee like a real person. Yeah. To make it so you couldn't tell if this was a real person or not. And he committed to this. Yes. And we will find this intense. The fun fact being that this kind of culminated with him not being Paul Ribbons, but Pee Wee being his own person. Yes. With what? What is probably the most interesting aspect of this? Oh, I would say it's probably his star on the Walk of Fame. <laughs> Yes, that doesn't say Paul Rubens, it's no. Pee Wee Herman. Absolutely, it's so weird. So because he had committed to this character, what I find interesting is we don't actually know a lot about who Pee Wee Herman was, like the life of Pee Wee Herman. But over the years, people have kind of gleamed fun facts and pieced together the story of who Pee Wee was. Mm-hmm. The biggest question being, is he a boy Is he a man? Is he a man-child? Oh. That's very difficult to answer because his first indications of having a career would indicate that he is a man, not a child. Right, because his earliest incarnation was him as a comedian, like a an individual who wanted a job as a comedian. Yeah, and didn't quite make it. Yeah, that was what he was doing at the Groundlings was, my name is Pee Wee Herman, I'm trying to be a comedian. I'm not giving you an example of a skit, but that's kind of what would happen. Mm-hmm. And actually, when we see him later, he's always like pulling things out of his bag and reminds me of Carrot Top. Very much Carrot Top lifted from this, yeah. yeah which I think is... a lot of uh, comedians did this at the time, yeah, yeah. but Pee Wee did it in a really fun way because he'd pull out things like Naked Gumby and stuff. I mean, it was really funny. Yes. But the idea being that he was a comedian who wanted to, like, find a career, but he was just awful. And that was that was the comedy was in how bad he was at comedy. Yeah. And but what's interesting is that as the Pee Wee character developed, especially we see this, we'll get to it eventually as the Pee Wee Herman show, is that he's more of a boy now because he's singing songs about how he's the luckiest boy in the world and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think this has always intentionally been a confusing area. What we do know, though, is that he's an inventor, for sure. Mm He has no source of income, but seems to have plenty of it. I read a fan theory that he is rich from his elaborate Rube Goldberg machines. Oh, okay. There you go. Uh, He also originally is from Florida, we find out. And he has a sister and a mother and father. His mother and father's names are Honey and Herman. Herman Herman. And he is the only one of his family that doesn't have a first name that starts with H. What was his sister's name? I found two different names, so I didn't want to say it because it's changed over the years. Okay. But one of them was Hermione. Oh. 
Yeah. Now, Pee-wee itself, where that name came from, was from a miniature harmonica he had, and it was the Pee-wee Company. Yep. And Herman was because he knew this crazy kid who was super energetic, and he just combined them. I think that's a very uh, kind way of referring to an insane kid he knew. We all know him. (laughs) (laughs) But that is where Pee-wee Herman came from, and then as far as the iconic look that we know so well... The suit itself, the gray suit, actually Mm -hmm. was a tailored suit that belonged to the director of the Groundlings at the time. Yeah. And he borrowed it. And then he had a black tie for a very brief period and then found a red bow tie. Somebody just randomly gave him a child's red bow tie. And that was it. He put on a little makeup, some red lipstick, and Pee Wee Herman was born. Mm -hmm. This was around 1978. Yeah. That's where the, the character has now been fleshed out. He and Phil Hartman have established who Pee-wee is and the act that's going to kind of start to come onto the stage, literally. Right. So he makes his first TV debut on the dating game of all places. (laughs) Can you imagine? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And this honestly tells us a lot about the dating game because there was the um, serial killer who was also on the dating game. Who was that? Alcala. Was it? Mm -hmm. Okay. So I... Let's never let anybody go on the dating game if it makes a comeback. It's a horrible run. I don't think it would make a comeback. Whatever. Pee-wee went on it in character. So it was not Paul (laughs) Rubens. It was Pee-wee. And this is, we see it so early, like right from the beginning, we see the separation as of Pee-wee as his own person. As Pee-wee Herman. So he goes on the dating game and tries to get a date. Just imagine what Pee-wee Herman is like on the dating game. And there you go. Surprisingly, he wasn't chosen. <laughs> I. This is very interesting to me. This reminds me of um, maybe a better version of this. But do you remember when Joaquin Phoenix committed to that role of being a musician, like a rapper or something yeah. like that? We never watched that. And people were confused if it was him or if it was a character Mm -hmm. or whatnot. This is complete commitment. And over the years, years. he showed up on talk show after talk show, never breaking character. Mm -hmm. Like he refused to show up as Paul Rubens for years and years. It wasn't until after Pee Wee was done. Mm -hmm. And when you see an interview with Paul Rubens, as we do a lot, is he's got the charm. He's got the sense of humor, but he is not Pee Wee Herman. No. And... Pee Wee Herman being interviewed is probably one of my favorite things in the world because he is so funny. And you can tell he is a master of improv. Like he really is, you know, from the school Mm -hmm. of top notch comedians that can just think on the spot. And so the fact that Pee Wee could go on to an actual television show and stay in character is no surprise to me, but yeah. man, what a funny way to, to introduce that character. Yeah, and so that was in 79. In 1980, he had a small part as a waiter in the Blues Brothers. And then he actually, it was like a dream or a major goal of his. He went and auditioned for Saturday Night Live. This is actually a major chapter in the story of, of Pee Wee Herman and Paul Rubens. Is none of this yeah, yeah, would have Yeah, it could have ended if if he had gotten it. But he didn't. Instead, he lost out to Gilbert Gottfried. Really? Yes, because they thought they had kind of similar humor uh, styles, which I can kind of see that because they're like skinny weirdos who are obnoxious. Uh, So he lost out to Gilbert Gottfried, and it was devastating to him, totally devastating. And you can watch interviews of him talking about it, but that was like 
pivotal because he was like, what do I do now? He had thought, you know, that was the next inevitable chapter, but it wasn't. That door closed to him. Or for a while it did, anyway. Yeah, for sure. And so he channeled his energy into Pee-wee because that's where he had seen a little spark of success. So he gathered a troupe of other comedians and performers and developed the Pee-wee Herman show. Yeah, the Pee Wee Herman show came out of necessity where he said, basically, if I can't do these characters on SNL, mm-hmm. I'm going to create my show, my mm-hmm. own show then. And this was a first in Groundlings history where they created an alternative format show with the Pee Wee Herman show being the very first one mm-hmm. where they allowed him to go up and basically create an actual show. And it started running at the Groundlings in 1979, 1980, around there. And it showed every Saturday at midnight. And what ended up happening is it became this underground buzz and people started coming. So they would do their normal stuff. And then after it was all done at midnight, Pee Wee would get up with his troupe. It would be his gang. So what happened is Phil Hartman would be there and introduce the character Captain Carl, Mm -hmm. which we would know. Uh, John Paragon would show up as Jombie and Terry, the pterodactyl. And then Lynn Marie Stewart would come on as Miss Yvonne. So they were all there from Mm -hmm. day one. And they would get on at midnight and perform to this very rowdy crowd. This is very important to know because Pee Wee was conceptualized in an improv group of adults. So the humor was this man dressed as a child playing with toys, but also having this underlying kind of perverted, jokey uh, attitude where he was... Very funny, but it was adult humor. He was definitely like a sexual being. Yes. Like from trying to look up girls' skirts and like these innuendos that actually just continue on throughout his career, but more subtly later. Yeah. So that's important to note that Pee Wee did not start as a children's program. No, 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 no. Character. It started as, an, as a funny a grown man comedian making jokes dressed as a kid. An after midnight kind of show. Yes, but it ended up becoming so insanely popular at the Groundlings that they had to actually move it to the Roxy Theater where it took off. And they ended up doing, at the height of this, Five months straight of sold out crowds. I'm mean, this wow. is I, that makes me tired. I know. It makes me so tired. They were selling out every single show, and of course what ended up happening is word got out, and eventually that same year, this is eighty one now, mm-hmm. HBO comes knocking and they say, Your show is a huge hit. Let's do a TV show of it. So they go and they record one of the actual Pee Wee Herman shows, Mm -hmm. which you can see. We watched the entirety of it not too long ago again. And it was... Oh, yeah. It's so funny. I mean, what did you think? Because this is... This is not Pee-wee's Playhouse Pee-wee. This is a very different version. Absolutely. Although it's it's fascinating because when you watch it, it you know, I had watched Pee-wee's Playhouse first. And this was something I watched very recently for the first time as an adult. So you see all of Pee-wee's Playhouse, like all of the seeds that you come to know and love in Pee-wee's Playhouse. But it is very different. It is... Uh, 
a little dirtier, a little weirder, a little creepier. (laughs) It is. It's definitely like you can tell it's an adult comedy show, but it's really funny. But yeah, a lot of the characters that get into Pee Wee's Playhouse are already there. Yeah, absolutely. Captain Carl, Miss Yvonne, Jombie, they're all there. They're all taking place. But they do things like, like Jombie... They get they find him a pair of hands mm-hmm. and he says, oh, there's something I've been wanting to do for a long time. Like that kind of sexual innuendo. Mm-hmm. It's funny. Like Pee Wee, uh, he hypnotizes a woman from the crowd who's also just another one of their yeah, friends of course. to take off her her dress to only her slip, you know, and mm-hmm. then it's like, you won't remember that you're not wearing clothes. And it's all very funny. Everybody's laughing. But that's the kind of humor because Pee Wee had been developed to entertain adult crowds. Yes. No intent ever of, of entertaining children. In addition to the the humor, mm-hmm. he also was already doing these numbers, like these musical numbers yes. in there. The cartoons were already in there. Yeah. But my favorite is at the end of the show. Sorry, sorry if it's a spoiler, but I mean, you've had whatever, 40 years. Is <sighs> he he gets his wish which is to kind of fly around, right? <laughs> and the way it's presented is hilarious with the effects. Yeah. And he sings this song that made us laugh so hard. Here's a little clip from it. I am the luckiest boy in the world. My wish to fly has come true. I was impressed with... Knowing Pee-wee, knowing his character as it develops, even at the very beginning, he's legitimately funny. Like, I laughed a lot. And I think that some of the humor is very much dated. You know, it's, yeah. it, it is what it is. But if I had seen this in 1981, yeah, I would have been like, cutting what edge. am I seeing? And that is the point right there. That's the thing that we need to drive home is why it led... F- one stone in front of the other just kept appearing like the bog of eternal stench mm-hmm. and he kept walking through it is because he had something about him mm-hmm. that was so different than anything else that was happening at the time the doors just kept opening yeah absolutely and so after this he started making several guest appearances on the on late night with david letterman yeah he was a huge fan right away and he was a fan favorite he went on there and you can look them up on youtube they're so funny and actually when i first started watching some of those early letterman appearances at first i thought he sucked honestly (laughs) like the initial few minutes, I was like, eh. But then the way that you, if you like really pay attention to what he's doing, you see how careful his movements are. And he saves himself from things that other comedians would, you know, falter. He flies. It's amazing. It's so masterful. It's like uh, watching an athlete make little adjustments as they run or something. Yeah, it's yeah I would agree. Wonderful. Yeah, he's definitely, that's where the improv comes through and shines. And these Letterman appearances really, and he, he recognizes, yeah. Paul Rubin talks about this a lot, that it's Letterman that really pushed him to a huge audience that he did not have otherwise. Because before this, he was like, it was kind of Rocky Horror Picture Show. It was a cult thing. It was like word of mouth. Yeah, everybody kind of knew it in the underground and stuff. The HBO show took off, but the Letterman appearances is what pushed him through. And what ended up happening is in 83, they all decided to take the Pee Wee Herman show on the road. Mm -hmm. And this was a very good decision because it went really well. 
actually all coming together in 84 for a sold out show at Carnegie Hall in New York City. I mean, this was no big deal, really going big. And this is where the career really takes off right here is that you you cannot achieve that much success without somebody noticing and Warner Brothers comes calling, which is not a small little independent studio at the time. This is no. a major studio. And they approach Paul Rubens with the idea of creating the Pee Wee Herman character into a movie. Yeah. So he immediately began working on a uh, script, which was a retelling of Pollyanna. Have you seen Pollyanna? No, I've never seen it. Oh, my gosh. So my great grandmother, who incidentally, I will mention again in a little bit, she got me hooked on Pollyanna. I have seen Pollyanna probably 50 times in my life. Wow. (laughs) I love Pollyanna. So the idea of, actually, it's like a beautiful marriage because my grandmother, my great grandmother also introduced me to Pee Wee Herman. Really? Yes, I'll get to it. Okay. But I love, love Pollyanna. So he was working on a uh, script that was a retelling of Pollyanna with Pee Wee Herman, which I really wish had happened. (laughs) Breaks my heart a little bit to think that it could have been. But instead, he was given, he like asked why everybody got a bike and he didn't or something to that effect. So the Warner Brothers Studios gave him a refurbished 1940s Schwinn bike. And it inspired him to drop the Pollyanna thing and rewrite the script for his first feature, which we know as Pee Wee's Big Adventure. And he worked on it with Phil Hartman and Michael Varhall. And they none of these people had actually ever written a script before at all. So, <laughs> We're going to find that with this whole crew. Is that just, This is a first for everybody. It's just shooting and hoping it hits the target. So they purchased the book by Sid Field on how to write screenplays. And they just did what the book told them. <laughs> And they they did it so perfectly that the movie is actually used in screenwriting classes because it fits that paradigm so perfectly. The film's 90 minutes long. The script is 90 pages. The first act ends at page 30, the 30-minute mark. Second act ends at page 60, the 60-minute mark, etc. This is interesting. And why I like that you're bringing this up is because we watched this really great interview with Paul Rubens where he talked about his passion for this script Mm -hmm. and this movie and how they believed in it and how he was unwilling to compromise. And Mm -hmm. this is a very important story in the the big adventure Mm -hmm. kind of saga is so Warner Brothers willing to give him a movie. Mm -hmm. They've got a budget and they basically say, you need to find a director. He goes and looks up as he tells it like, a list. He had a directory of directors mm-hmm. and he found any director that did anything remotely interesting and he gave him a list of like 120 or something like that, over 100 directors. He comes back and the executives say, okay, we found the director that is going to shoot Big Adventure. And he was faced with this dilemma because he felt very strongly that this was not the right director for mm-hmm. his project. This is kind of a famous story if you're a Peewee fan is... Paul Rubens was inspired by none other than Sylvester Stallone with Rocky because <laughs> he was pitching Rocky and nobody wanted Stallone to be the lead. Mm-hmm. And he refused to do the movie until he found somebody that was willing to let him be the lead. Mm-hmm. And Paul Rubens kept this in mind, was like, this is my baby and I'd rather not make the movie mm-hmm. than compromise. Yeah. And so he told them, 
no, I won't make the movie unless you let me pick the director. And they said, good luck, fine. And I think this is hilarious, is he walked out of the studio meeting like, I don't know any directors. Yeah, you know, that's really interesting to me. It really struck me, and I've actually been thinking about that a lot. So in this, he talks about, you know, not wanting to compromise his vision. And we have, as artists, so much respect for that. But also, I know a lot of dumb dummies who don't want to compromise their vision, but their vision sucks. <laughs> That's true. So, I mean, it's a roll of the dice. If maybe people with uncompromising vision are actually visionaries, or maybe they're dumb dummies, who knows? So I think the studio is like, cool, find your own director. Let's see what happens. But it <laughs> turns out he's a visionary. Yeah. Yeah, let's tell the story that Paul Rubens told about how he came to find the director. Oh, yeah. That so he good. found. Yeah, so he goes to a party and just starts randomly asking people, do you know directors? That is no joke, people. That is <laughs> that is what he did, because he had no clue how he was going to get himself out of this hole that he just dug. Although it's not like if a normal person goes to a party, he's already, as we said, really good at... Uh, connecting networking so he knows a bunch of famous people who know other famous people who are plugged in etc so he he was asking the right people these questions it's not like he was just running around hollywood going do you know a director he goes to a party where he i mean he tells this story casually but i think it was a calculated choice where he's like ah people here will know and yeah. he goes to this specific party with that in mind Find somebody who recommends, she's like, oh, oh, I know a director. Yeah, you guys might have heard of him. Uh, it's a young, unknown director named Tim Burton. He oh. had mm -hmm. just done a short called Frankenweenie. Okay. So this is just amazing when you think about oh the history of cinema in Hollywood, is that his friend at this party had seen Frankenweenie and was like, how did I not put this together before you two are like two peas in a pod, you have to meet him. And so he was already like, okay, yeah, cool, because I respect this person's decision. They know who I am as an artist. But what ended up happening is she said, who you need to call is Shelley Duvall. Yep. Because she was in Frankenweenie. And guess what? Mr. Network here knew Shelley Duvall. So he called her and Shelley was like, oh, yeah, Tim Burton, you definitely need to know this guy. Why this is important is this is the Tim Burton before Tim Burton. He still had the crazy hair already, as Paul said. Like, Obviously. he actually said it was crazier back then. <laughs> he was 27 years old. Oh, my god! Had never directed a feature. And Paul Rubens watched Frankenweenie. And he said within the first couple seconds knew mm -hmm. this was the guy. And I believe that. I don't think he's yeah. BSing at all. Makes perfect sense oh, that yeah. those two would come together. Called up Tim Burton, he agreed, and the rest is history because Tim Burton signed on to do his very first feature film, which was Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Yeah, so Tim Burton actually read the script, which by this point, it was kind of loosely based on The Bicycle Thief. It involves Pee-wee Herman having his rad bike, which <laughs> yeah, is the so raddest rad, yeah. bike of all time, stolen, and it's his big adventure to get his bike back yeah, it's so great although the story doesn't end there no. we're not going to talk about the movie because hopefully everybody's seen it if not go watch it but that's not the point of this episode we don't have time but what we do have time to do is talk about one other really interesting character that came to the fold 
is that they needed a film composer. <laughs> and both uh, Paul Rubens and Tim Burton were fans of an underground new wave uh, art house punk band called Oingo Boingo. Casually. And they called up a then member of Oingo Boingo, Danny Elfman, who had only done one film, which was uh, Forbidden Zone. That was his own project. Watch that. Whoa. And said, would you do this, the music for this film? Mm-hmm. And Danny Elfman, this is shocking, had never composed like an actual legit film composition with an orchestra and all that. He'd only done just band stuff because he was a band guy. So he saw it as an opportunity to show that he could actually do real composing. Mm -hmm. And so Tim Burton at 27, Paul Rubens, sign on Danny Elfman, which is amazing when you think about what all three of these guys went on to do. Yeah, I think I think that Paul Rubens was only in his early 30s, like 32 at this point. Yeah, it's just fascinating. So this was not only Tim Burton's first feature film, this was also Danny Elfman's very first feature film as a major composer. And I will say this was a good decision. Came out in 1985. They gave it a $6 million budget. And it did pretty well. It went on to do $40 million. Jeez. And it has like Twisted Sister in it. Actually, do you know who was supposed to be in it? Who? You know the like bratty boy who ends up with his bike? Yeah. Uh that was supposed to be Corey Feldman. But oh, he, really? He couldn't do it because he was filming for the Goonies. Dude, Corey got Isn't around. Isn't that weird? Dang. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's also why Corey couldn't do um, Friday the 13th Part 5 is because he was yeah. doing the Goonies too. Man, that kid Did Goonies just take like eight years to film? <laughs> what Whatever. It was worth it. So Big Adventure comes out. It's a massive success. And as you can imagine... This is going to open a lot of doors because people loved this movie. And now Pee-wee was like a bona fide star. And interestingly, so this was released on August 9th, 1985. Guess what he was doing on November 23rd of that year? What? Hosting Saturday Night Live. Really? Yep. Oh, that's so interesting. Isn't that great? Yeah, that's great. Well, by 1986, this is this is where we're all at. This yeah. is the big one. CBS approaches him to do a children's TV show, a Saturday morning TV show. And this is interesting because Big Adventure is a is a PG film. Yeah, so it lost a lot of that, you know, risque humor from his his like uh, HBO special and his traveling show. This is also kind of genius because one of the things that I will give Paul Rubens to the character is that although he had to abandon the adult themes that will kind of poke up, but not really, not anything like the Pee Wee Herman and show. Adults, you if you, you watch Pee Wee Herman, you'll be like, oh. Didn't but see that when I was a kid. <laughs> what's smart is that he keeps the adult audience plugged in. Yes. And this, when you read uh, reviews of the time, reporters talk about this, how like the cool kids are watching Pee Wee, like the adults, because yeah. it's kind of like, uh, what was the one that we watched when our kids were little? Yo Gabba Gabba. Oh, yeah. Same idea. Like it was a cool kids show. So yeah. it was like everybody could enjoy it. Yeah. And that's Who's what, on that? Bismarck Key? Yeah, and uh, I think Mark Mothersbaugh, who we'll oh. talk about soon, also was on there. But Pee-wee's Big Adventure was just cool enough, but also just tame enough to open the door for a children's show. Yeah, and actually, Paul Rubens took it super seriously. He wouldn't let Pee-wee, like, 
smoke like he wouldn't let himself be seen smoking even though he was a smoker at the time mm-hmm. he he took it very seriously like you know shifting down to make it appropriate for children and to make peewee herman across the board kid appropriate yeah and this is something that he struggled with because his true sense of humor did have an adult leaning and he was a you know just a funny normal guy because he's an adult yeah and i think this is where the early stages of him talking to Phil Hartman started with questioning if he should take the next step with the Pee-wee character or just end it right there. Like it yeah. had a good run and he chose to go ahead and go with it. So Phil Hartman came on with him early on with Pee-wee's Playhouse to co-write. Yeah. And he brought all his characters with him. Did you know that actually they were initially approached to do a, like a cartoon I think I did know that. Yeah, he's like, no thanks. Yeah, so he wanted to do the live action. It started up. I don't know when this happened, and we have some questions about this, but I think it became known at the time as the most expensive uh, per episode TV show that was happening at the height that I was aware of. Each episode, this keep in mind, this is 1986-87, was costing $325,000 an episode. Right, and that's what they, they were... Paying like what CBS was paying for like uh, primetime shows at that time. This was massive. So I think what happened here because we watched a little bit of a behind the scenes situation, and in their first year, it seemed like they were shooting in a lot. Well, they were shooting in a loft in New York, and it, they all were complaining about the budget. So I think initially their budget, maybe for like their pilot. This is my guess. I'm just totally spitballing here because they were all talking about how poor they were and then they shot over to california to la and started working uh you know with money yeah and we'll talk about a certain crew member who has a firsthand account of how their lifestyle changed pretty dramatically when they went out to la they got a better studio and he brought on like I said, so Miss Yvonne, Captain Carl, all those people early on came on board and then they introduced some new characters that we'll talk about eventually. But one of the biggest contributors to the look and feel and character development, set design, production design to Pee Wee's Playhouse is one of our favorite artists and characters. And I'll let you talk about it, but there is an amazing documentary that is probably one of the best documentaries we've ever seen out mm-hmm. there that includes the overview of Pee-wee's Playhouse. Yeah, so if you're familiar with Wayne White, um, you'll you'll already probably know about Beauty is Embarrassing. That's the name of the documentary. If you haven't seen it, seriously, do yourself a favor. Wayne White is a delight. He's silly, smart, and so creative. He's so relatable, too. Yeah. If you oh. are a creative person and you just want somebody to talk to you like a real person... The way he just is aware of who he is and it's conveyed in that documentary. This is seriously one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. We've watched it so many times now. Yes, I love it. But in that documentary, you'll see a little bit about the making of Pee Wee and also how that catapulted Wayne White's career. So he had been living in New York, just sort of fell into this weird gig of being like a puppeteer for Pee Wee's Playhouse in a loft in New York City. And yeah. his his job was 
basically developing everything that had already been established. I, I had previously thought that he created these characters. He really hadn't, like, Terry the Pterodactyl. Yeah. So uh, some of the things he did have a lot of insight into, but others were already there. They already existed. But he took what Paul Rubens and everybody else had created and made it so much more magical, along with all of the other artists who were involved. Yeah, there were these kind of set and prop designers and puppeteers. There was a group of maybe three or four of them Mm -hmm. who were just these misfits. They were all in bands. They all just sat around smoking pot constantly and writing fun stuff for Pee Wee's Playhouse. Uh, Wayne White's main contribution, in addition to all the set design and stuff, like we said, was Randy, but also one of my favorite reoccurring Mm -hmm. characters, well, or group of characters on Pee Wee's Playhouse, where, you know, the cool cat and the chick and all that, that mm-hmm. was the jazz, the beatnik jazz yeah. band. He did all that. He does also does the voices for many characters on Pee-wee's Playhouse, like one of the flowers. He does Randy's voice, one of the beatnik characters. Yeah, and why I would recommend not only just knowing about his life, but he tells these really interesting stories about how when they're just sitting around on set with nothing to do, these people are hyper creative and they need to do something. There was basically a second Pee-wee's Playhouse that nobody knew about. Yes. Where these guys made their own puppets and own sets and did their own show while they were waiting around to do Pee-wee's Playhouse. I'll leave it at that. But I will say it is really fun and really fascinating. Why this is important is we're talking about a group of very, very creative people that are extremely eccentric, Mm -hmm. all coming together to make Pee-wee's Playhouse what it is. So... When it is unveiled on CBS to the public, it's an instant hit. Oh, and it is amazing. because, like his stand-up show, nobody had seen anything like it. It was so forward-thinking. Mm-hmm. It was so advanced, so different, that it was massive. And it just took off. Do you remember the first time you saw Pee-wee's Playhouse? I don't. I grew up on it. I mean, we were talking about this kind of off mic was that you and I are at the perfect age where when this came out, I was a kid. And so I watched this religiously. Truthfully, Pee-wee was a huge part of my childhood. Mm -hmm. I have never not loved Pee-wee. We'll talk about reasons you could try and not like him later. But no, I... I, if anything, love Pee-wee even more after doing all this research. I could not wait every Saturday to sit down and watch Pee-wee's Playhouse. Like, this was the event of Saturday morning for me. Yes, absolutely. I agree. And for me, I uh, was living in Wyoming at the time. And one of my very favorite memories is one day we had a, like, an absolutely insane snowpocalypse kind of situation to the point that there were mountains literal mountains of snow like I mean of course I was maybe six at the time but they were taller than my mother by far and we decided we were going to go ahead and go to see my grandmother my great-grandmother whose name is Rose and she my mom put us in like super thick coats and stuff and put us in a sled my baby brother and me and she pulled us over these mountains of snow and at the last there was like a hill of snow in front of my grandmother's house where I think they'd been like trying to move it to clear some roads for emergency responders I don't really know but 
there was a huge mountain and I got out of the sled that my mom had been pulling and ran as fast as I could up. And I could see like at an angle to the second story of her house, if that gives you an idea of how big the snowbank was. And I ran down and I remember running inside and it was so warm and we ran upstairs and watched Pee Wee. (laughs) That's great. Yeah. Yeah. It was also one of the things that I loved was that the opening theme was so memorable yes. and it just made you very excited and you know what hopefully we don't get in trouble but how could we not play a little clip right here okay This also brings me to this week's fun fact. Fun fact. As you may know, Mark Mothersbaugh from Devo had scored it. So he did, he composed the theme. He co-wrote it with Paul Rubens. It's very memorable. He loved it. He had a lot of fun doing it. Uh, he was looking for reasons, too, to do stuff because he was on a, a break from Devo at the time. So that's why he agreed to do it. But the fun fact is, and I didn't know this, but apparently if you read even two seconds on Pee Wee's Playhouse, everybody knows it. So <laughs> screw all you all. This is still my fun fact. Is that that high pitch crazy voice that's singing yeah. was an uncredited Cindy Lauper doing a Betty Boop impression. <laughs> and that blew my mind because I was like, of course it was Cindy Lauper. Of course. So that made me so happy. Speaking of Mark doing the music, he actually went on to do the music for Pee Wee's Playhouse. And as a composer, you know, I'm going to want to like focus on this. Also, this is a little teaser to our Patreon account is if you are interested in music for film and film music composers, That's what the chill factor is all about. But this really fascinated me. And maybe I'll do an episode on him down the road for for the chill factor. This would be very cool. He was talking, though, about how insane the playhouse kind of environment was, which we found out from Wayne White, too. Everybody was just kind of pulling, like wearing a bunch of hats and trying to do as much as they can. But this is what Mark Mothersbaugh had to say about working on Pee Wee's Playhouse. He said, Pee Wee's Playhouse was really chaotic. They'd send me the tape from New York on Tuesday. I'd watch it Tuesday night. Wednesday, I'd write the music. Thursday, I'd record the music. It'd go out Thursday night to them. They'd have Friday to cut it into the picture. And then Saturday, we'd be watching it on TV. Oh, my god! It was very fast. And instead of writing an album once a year, I was writing an album's worth of music once a week. It was really exciting. It was a new experience and it was a different creative process. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine? That is so intense. And that really explains the burnout we're going to talk about in a little bit. I can't imagine working that hard for an extended period of time without a full freak out. Yeah. Now, before we leave uh, Pee Wee's Playhouse, I do, this isn't a fun fact, but I do have to throw out this little fact. Uh, for my friend Grizz from Bad Taste Video Podcast is, did you know that Rob Zombie was a production assistant on Pee Wee's Playhouse? That's so weird. <laughs> Why? I mean, I, I, I kind of get it, though. Okay, well, there it's out there. But also, we should talk about briefly, he had a Christmas special in 1988. Oh, yeah. And I mentioned this just because of the sheer name dropping that happens. So many celebrity guests come on that it's like 
too much to handle, quite frankly. I'm going to guess Cher. Was she on there? But, but <laughs> just hold up. Um, I think that... I think that it shows how well connected Paul Rubens was, but also how successful Pee Wee had become by this point. So in this regular episode, just a just a Christmas special, there was uh, Frankie Avalon, Annette Funicello, Charo, of course. Wait, didn't Pee Wee have an appearance on like Back to the Beach or something like that? He had so many. I, I bet you that's where that connection came from. Grace Jones. Katie oh, Lang. Grace Jones. I know. Dinah Shore. Little Richard. Cher. Ah, Cher was on it. I knew it. The Del Rubio, Del Rubio triplets. Magic Johnson. Zsa Zsa. Whoopi Goldberg. Oprah Winfrey. Joan Rivers. And the UCLA Men's Choir. Wow. So. I've seen the Christmas special, but we have not watched it in a long time. Yeah. And I found it recently on VHS thrifting and we're saving it. <laughs> we were going to watch it in preparation, but I was like, let's save it for Christmas with the kids. Because our kids, full disclosure, are huge Pee Wee fans too. They think he's hilarious for oh, good reason. They saw Big Adventure for the first time recently and they were crying laughing. It was like how I saw it. I, I yeah. loved it. I love that it it just kind of stayed relevant to children's yeah, humor great. they thought it was so funny yes it was it was when a he hit. comes out with the snakes and he's like after like debating if he should save them as the fire <laughs> in the pet shop and then he finally comes out and he's holding the snakes in his hands and he screams and faints <laughs> our youngest was like cry laughing she thought it was the funniest thing in the world it was so good so um in the midst of all this he also films big top peewee which is the follow-up and it's kind of weird because it's just Pee Wee Herman is now a small town farmer uh, with a fiance and then a traveling circus comes to town and he finds himself uh, falling in love with the trapeze artist. Yeah, this was problematic for many reasons. Now, Tim Burton didn't come back for this, as you know, but Danny Elfman did. Yeah, Tim Burton couldn't be there because he'd just done Beetlejuice. Uh, and he had but begun pre-production on Batman. Okay. Well, Danny Elfman was able to come on, but this is really interesting. Because this was a different production company, he wasn't allowed to use a single theme from Big Adventure. So he had it's to redo bonkers. everything for that. He had to actually make his money. What I did read during the time, for like reviews of the time, was the reason why this flopped was because... Pee-wee works best in Pee-wee's world. It doesn't come across the same way. And it just yeah. didn't work for a lot of people. And this was Paul Rubin's first real major blow where he didn't just have a knockout when he did something. Yeah. This was made on a $20 million budget and it only made back $15 million, So mm. it actually lost money, which is a huge departure from $6 million to $40 million with his yeah. first film. Yeah, absolutely. I do want to make a note before we move on. Uh, Vance the Pig from this movie is voiced by Wayne White. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, as you mentioned, Paul Rubens was definitely burning out. I mean, this had been nonstop for years and years and years. You have to think he came back with this character in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And we are now at the end of the 90s or at the end of the 80s. 80s. So by 1989... He was offered to renew his contract Mm -hmm. and he opted out, which sucks because as Wayne White said, like, you're just all of a sudden you're out of a job. Yeah, it sucks for all the people it impacts. And everybody that worked on this said, like, they knew this was the best job they were going to ever have. Mm -hmm. And so the party was over. 
what he did, what Paul Rubens did was he still had two years left of his contract to complete it. So they just plowed through and recorded both the rest of the seasons. seasons. Yeah. So that he could just be done with it and didn't renew. And that was by 90, it was done. It was recorded. He had recorded his fourth and fifth season, opting out of a sixth. Right. This was all decided. Let's make that clear before we get to the rest of this story. Because Pee Wee had just run its course. And honestly, like, it sucks that people were out of the job. But they were also all incredibly talented people with now Pee Wee's Playhouse on their resume. So he wasn't just being a jerk. But I think that that level of creative intensity, it's gonna burn out. You just can't continue to innovate at that rate Mm -hmm. for that long. It was inevitable. Yeah, and keep in mind that one of the stipulations of the contract in 86 when they started Pee-wee's Playhouse, Paul Rubens made it crystal clear that he got full creative control, mm-hmm. and that was true. Like they yeah. So what that did was it was a double-edged sword because he had to kind of run the show and it just wore him out. And I think it was smart, honestly, yeah. to just call it a day and say Keep in mind, this guy knows how to act, and he also had other things that he wanted to do with his life. Mm -hmm. So this is important because of what's about to happen. People thought that the reason why Pee-wee's Playhouse stopped was because of a scandal, but it wasn't. It had already been decided and was done. Yes. He was just ready to move on to the next thing. And can you imagine committing to a character so much so that you are recognized as your character is in a star on the Walk of Fame that you're interviewed in character, not as your own individual person. Like that level of intensity would drive me to the brink of absolute insanity. Yeah, he said that even his friends just called him Pee Wee by Ugh. the end, and it drove him crazy. They had won twelve Emmys at this point too. I mean, yeah, it was one of the most successful children's shows in history. Wayne White alone won three. Yeah, there you go. No surprise. So what happened was in 91, he had fulfilled his contract and he said, I'm taking a vacation. As Phil Hartman said, like he wanted to travel the world. He wanted Mm -hmm. to just regroup, figure out what his next step was. And one of the things that that Paul Rubens did regularly was when he wasn't filming Pee Wee so that he could just kind of be in disguise around the rest of humanity mm-hmm. because he found quickly that when he went out normal, people would be like, you know, I know you are, but what am I kind of constantly. Ugh. And it drove him crazy is he would grow a goatee. He would grow his hair out and be able to just kind of. It's the early 90s. Sure. So he in 91 was on vacation. He went to go visit his parents. He's mm-hmm. in Florida just hanging out. And on a Friday night, we're going to get to it, everybody. Here we go. (sighs) July 26th, 1991. It's a Friday night. Paul Rubens is bored. And he (laughs) decides to go to the adult theater, the South Trail Cinema, where they show a triple bill that night. Would you like to know what they were showing? Uh, I don't know. (laughs) Nancy Nurse, Turn Up the Heat, and Tiger Shark. He goes in there. It's, you know, hardly anybody's in there. Just a few people because... It's they're minding their own damn business. He's an adult. They go in there. He's watching the movie. We don't need to get into the details, actually, because nobody quite knows what happened. It seems a little, little suspect, confusing. But I will say, for no apparent reason, and I read a lot of articles from the time on this. The Rolling Stone article from '91 actually was probably the best one. 
they brought up the question, which a lot of the locals did too, that said, how did the sheriff's department not have anything better going on than a deputy undercover wanted to go sit in a porno theater on a Friday night, let alone four undercover cops went to a place that had no history of disturbing the peace or anything. This is just business as usual. Six miles away, four cops are just sitting around watching porn. And one of them claims that Paul Rubens started to touch himself inappropriately. They arrested a bunch of people, like four people that night. Every single one that got arrested said, um, I didn't even know this was a crime. I'm sitting in a porn theater. Like, why, why are you guys why here? Why would you let this be? <laughs> exactly. Not saying that he didn't do this but what i'm saying is that we are not alone in being like who cares honestly okay two things first of all i feel like there are probably some murders and drug smuggling in florida happening at that time that could use their attention um secondly if that's a crime why do they allow that establishment to do that (laughs) yeah um I mean, if you want to, like, make that illegal, which, I mean, gross and weird, whatever, if you want to go to a, a, a movie with, space, yeah. with a bunch of guys and do that, that's your business. I don't care. But why would you allow that if it's against the law? Because <laughs> what are they going to do there? It's really weird. And the, the other thing that we don't need to get into, I feel like it's almost another whole episode, is the Rolling Stone article brought up. This is also a sheriff's department that had a reputation of letting their deputies get fully naked and engage in activities and hotel room busts and stuff like that. Meanwhile, their crime rate, their drug rate was going up. So I think it was suspect all around. Yeah. Needless to say, he got arrested. It wasn't a small ordeal for him. (laughs) He got a mugshot and a local reporter said, wait a minute. I think that's Pee Wee Herman. This got blown out of proportion. And this is the story is beyond belief that it was so intense and it became such national news. It became the news program. Oh, yeah, I remember it. It was crazy. But what the fascinating thing that happened, and if you read all kinds of uh, reviews and articles and, and news programs from the time, there was actually kind of an immediate backlash to the media of support, of going, so? Like, who cares? Leave this guy alone. Yep. None of our business. And I think that's what's fascinating is that there was this huge attempt to make it a big deal. And I think the main reason being that nobody had seen Paul Rubens out of the Pee Wee character ever. Mm -hmm. And this was jarring to see a mugshot of this guy that looked disheveled with long hair and facial hair at a porno theater. Yeah, he looked like he'd be at like a Soundgarden concert. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Uh, So... The backlash was crazy, but he immediately had people come to his defense for good reason. Honestly, all opinions aside, I'm just going to weigh in. I don't care what you guys think, but this was this was dumb. Like it, he it was, was minding his own business in a small town theater. He wasn't doing it in front he of wasn't kids. Wasn't harming anybody. And as Paul Rubin said, they conveyed it as though he was in the Pee Wee character, like talking to kids as he was doing it. Like, yeah. it was so, so twisted. Well, and he had two audiences, really. He had the children and their mothers and fathers audience who probably were like shocked and appalled. And then he had the young adults who loved Pee Wee for the the other side of Pee Wee. And a lot of them knew the Pee Wee Herman show. So this yeah. was like, well, 
who who cares? Why? Who yeah. cares? Although Disney and MGM Studios did suspend a video that showed him like explaining how voiceover tracks worked or something. Toys R Us removed Pee Wee toys from its stores, and then this was, I think, the lowest hit was that his the Pee Wee's Playhouse was removed from syndication, which is like a cash cow. So I think that was a pretty big bummer. Yeah, he pleaded no contest and ended up taking 75 hours of community service. Which he actually used to self-produce and uh, finance PSAs about drug use, the dangers of crack cocaine. Which was actually (laughs) applauded because it was something that related, like children could relate to. Yeah, (laughs) Because he's really good with kids. Yeah, but there was overwhelming support from fans. I read something at the time that there was some programs that were doing like phone call surveys and stuff. Yeah. And that nine out of 10 people were supporting Paul Rubens. I feel like this was a, a similar time to the like free Winona time you know sure. where we're just like whatever Who yeah cares? nobody cares this was Who even there was cares? bigger and better things going on than dealing with this so i think everybody was so sick after all of the like you know witch hunts of the 80s we're in the 90s now everybody's like just stop and although we can look at it this way it's like how did this even become an issue keep in mind this was a real person's life and this was devastating for Paul Rubens. Like, yes. he was mortified. He was embarrassed. He's gone on record saying that. Like, this was so embarrassing. Oh, yeah. He had a successful show. Uh, but imagine just having to explain to your parents. <laughs> just, or your sister, because his sister is a lawyer and he needed her advice. That was like, one of the headlines was uh, like, every teenage boy's worst nightmare just happened for Paul Rubens. And, oh, it's just so, I just feel so much empathy. That's the worst. Anyway, that behind him, he laid very low. He was mm-hmm. off the radar for a while. And then his first real public appearance post this whole scandal was September 5th, 1991, so that some time had passed, and uh, he came to the MTV Awards Ceremony. It was really just a couple of months or a few months later. Yeah, it was only a couple, but he had totally dropped off the radar. Yeah. So it, it had given a little bit of time to die down. He shows up at the MTV Music Awards in full Pee-wee costume. Mm-hmm. So not the goatee, long-haired dude that we had last seen in Mugshots. He's he's come out of Doris Duke's estate, and he is ready <laughs> as Pee-wee, and he just says this. Jokes lately? <laughs> <laughs> to it's a standing perfect. ovation, too. Perfect. Like people were totally behind him. I thought that was a pretty cool move. It was it was a boss move for sure. But this really did mark the end of the legacy of Pee-Wee. We'll we're gonna now turn, you know, our our attention towards the later years, but this really was the definitive kind of nail in the coffin for the classic Pee-wee. Yes. So after this, he went on to do minor appearances. He really did not resurrect the Pee-wee character. Time here and there, little, little tiny snippets. But he really did retire it for the most part. 
and just took up normal acting. Like he he got roles where he could get them. Well, my favorite is that he went on to do the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie, and he specifically said that he wanted to have long hair and a goatee. He said he wanted character. to look like his mugshot. Yes, I love that. And if you have seen that, he does a stellar job. He's so great. Fantastic. Oh, <laughs> oh we gotta watch so that. So good. And then he also did Batman Returns. Uh, Nightmare Before Christmas was a huge hit that mm-hmm. he was a part of. A ton of voice acting. Yeah, and then Murphy Brown was a big one. He was a reoccurring character. I think he was nominated for like an Emmy or something too for that. Needless to say, he was doing just fine. He did Mystery Men, which you and I secretly yeah, love. Yeah, 19... No, I don't secretly. I love it. Love 1999. Brown. He was just <laughs> He was so good in that movie. Yes. And then 2001 was a big one. He was in uh, the Johnny Depp film, Blow. Yep. I, everything was riding high again for him. He had made his comeback. And then, of course, it's the story of his life. Uh. <laughs> uh, scandal hits again. And we cannot get through this episode. Even though this is not Pee-wee related, the two are linked forever. 2002, he gets a surprise phone call that he is being charged with child pornography. And this comes as a shock to himself and everybody else that knows him. Yes. Let's go into this a little bit. Um, because this is a very bizarre story. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it. No. But what had happened was, if you remember old Jeffrey Jones from, you know, Howard the Duck and all that stuff, Mm -hmm. had gotten busted with child porn and caught up in that, somebody who was a witness to Jeffrey Jones says, oh, you should check out, you know, Paul Rubens too, for whatever reason. We don't even know. That was never clear. The police raid his place And imagine walking into literally Pee-wee's Playhouse, as it's described. Like, he collected bizarre trinkets and kitsch stuff from the turn of the century, Mm -hmm. the 30s, the 40s. He loved, like, all this bizarre stuff. One of the things that he really enjoyed collecting was vintage magazines, old erotic magazines, basically every rockabilly musician. Vintage, you know, like, they're, they're all over everybody's bathrooms. Anyway, he would buy them, though. His dealer said, the, like, art dealer said that he would buy them in these massive lots. And we're talking, like, hundreds, thousands of stuff. He would buy them in these huge lots of magazines. And his dealer said the thing that he would ask for is cool vintage stuff, like old physique magazines of, like, guys, like, lifting weights and stuff like that. He thought all this stuff was really cool. But he did say to him, he remembered him saying... Nothing with kids or anything like that. I just want these cool stuff. Vintage erotica. That's super, super duper common. It's also very trendy. And I will say, like, that's where this story is a little convoluted because he also collected turn of the century, like tin types and daguerreotypes of mm-hmm. artist studies, which as art historians, I will tell you, many artists used children's models, mostly teenagers. In this case, they were like 17 year old guys who would sometimes be nude. This is so twisted. And why we're yeah. coming to the defense is, I think anybody who has art collections is going to have a book with some of this stuff in it. Yes, absolutely. Actually, if you have looked at a Caravaggio, you've looked at an underage boy. So Yeah. So the LAPD tried to say that what Paul Rubens had were all these underage kids performing sexual acts. And Paul Rubens was like, there is no way that's true. No. To the point of... that the district attorney found no grounds for this, dropped all felony charges and basically said, this is just a guy's quirky like art collection that Mm -hmm. happened to have some minors in it 
from vintage photography. This is complicated because it seems like, oh, you're just defending somebody who's constantly doing something. In this case, I kind of believe him. I think that maybe it wasn't his best choice knowing that he had already gotten in trouble once. However, if you collect weird art stuff from the past, you're going to have this. It just happens. It's in all these Especially books. Especially if you're buying in lots. Uh, I think that's the issue. If there had been even one drop on like a hard drive of a photo of a kid, that would be 100% different. Yeah, I don't know why this happened. It and it's weird. unfortunate because Paul Rubin said, it's sad that I'm basically known for two, two like offenses. And like that's what he has to constantly defend. But... That happened. After that, he went to Florida. His dad was terminally ill. Can you even imagine, like... <laughs> Dealing with all this? Oh, my gosh. So then he goes to Florida and spends the last two, de- two years of his father's life just helping care yeah, for his taking dad. Taking care of him. He does some bit roles between now and then. He's still making a living. But it's 2009 where he really comes back strong and decides, you know what? Screw it. I'm bringing back the Pee Wee character. Yeah, he said he woke up one morning and was just ready to bring him back. Sure. It's on. It's always been on his own terms. Mm-hmm. So he comes back. 2009, there's rumblings about how he's going to bring back the actual the Pee Wee Herman show, not mm-hmm. Playhouse. Yeah. And then in 2010, in January, they do a run and it is... Surprise, a huge success. Of course. So much so that by November, they have to relocate it to Broadway, where it, this blew me away, sold over $3 million in advanced ticket sales alone. Huge success. HBO does another special. And then SNL, he's back on there in 2011. I think this time he's with Andy Samberg on a skit where he's like drunk Pee-wee harassing people. I think it's really funny. Keep in mind, Pee-wee was a a mature character to begin with. Tongue in cheek at this point. And then 2016, Pee-wee's big holiday comes out. This is a collaboration with producer Judd Apatow. And there was a lot of pushback. This was tough because Paul Rubens decided if he wanted to come back... He wanted to do a very kind of dark comedy where Pee-wee was like a recovering alcoholic and was trying to put his life back together. (laughs) Judd Apatow was like, no way in hell we're doing the classic Pee-wee. And there was constant back and forth. They kind of argued the whole time, but it did get made. Judd Apatow won, obviously, because it wasn't that version of Mm Pee-wee. And Pee-wee's Big Holiday comes out on Netflix. It's an original movie and it was successful. I mean, it was well received and it did well. But that did not stop Paul Rubens from still pursuing this idea of doing it, what he calls the Pee Wee Herman story, which is a movie that is like a dark comedy. And currently, he is still trying to get funding oh. to tell that version of Pee Wee Herman. And that's basically where, where Pee Wee is at currently. So what are your thoughts? <laughs> uh, I, think, I think it's fascinating. I do think the run-in with the law... In both accounts, I don't normally defend people, but both cases, they do seem crystal clear that they were just way blown out of proportion. So I'm willing to kind of overlook those. I think it's tough when you're in the public eye to live a perfect, you know, life. Yeah. But overall, I think that he created a character that was so bizarre and eccentric and committed to it so completely that the success makes perfect sense. Yeah. I think that it is enduring. I think that it holds up. Every time I watch Pee-wee's Playhouse or anything, I still laugh even though it's a kid's yes. show. It's funny. It is actually funny. And I think that he is an incredibly gifted actor and comedian. And I think his story is so bizarre because it is 
part of pop culture. You don't normally get these kind of a massive success stories coupled with massive um, like scandals. Yeah, that can continue on linked together forever, and yes. people just take it or leave it. Yeah, absolutely. It's like like the dude from Blue's Clues. If he had a like a sexual scandal of any kind, of course he's like a an adult male. Yeah, but we tend to just like desexualize anybody who works with kids because they do it. Obviously, in order to work with kids. But we as adults need to remember that they're real human beings with their own life and experiences that extend beyond the lens of the camera. So that's why I don't care at all about... I mean, I think it's weird that he went to that place personally, but if that's his thing... <laughs> did a free do your country. Thing. Yeah. I really love the Pee Wee Herman character. I think it's funny. So creative. I enjoy it. And I think his story and his commitment and his success is well-deserved. And I think it's just a fascinating story from the 80s that continued on into the 90s and apparently still going strong today why not so that is the peewee herman story the history of him that was a big thing to tackle this is the longest episode we've ever done but i think it was well worth it i hope you guys enjoyed it it was a lot of fun to do yeah so much fun hopefully you feel inspired to go watch peewee's playhouse or peewee's big adventure highly recommend yeah um absolutely don't forget about our patreon we would really appreciate your support because we want to keep this keep the lights on here and uh keep doing this yeah i'm also incredibly excited to not have to do any more research on this so this is a celebration tomorrow i'm gonna sleep hard tonight (laughs) uh if you as always want to follow us we are on instagram at laser graves our personal sites i am at death at 33 rpm i'm at mariah rose wimmer you can find us anywhere and everywhere you get your podcasts Also, you can go to lasergraves.com and listen to us there. Our Patreon is patreon.com slash lasergraves. And that is all we have for you this week. Go listen to our fellow podcasters. Have a good week. Enjoy this episode. Congrats to our winners. Yes. And uh, we will see you next week. Probably Golden Child? Uh, Yeah. How about Golden Child next week? All right. All right. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Bye.